As the racing season winds down, the separation season begins. Now, when I say separation season, I don't mean the season to separate yourself from racing, although that's exactly what many of your competitors are doing. And that provides an opportunity for you to separate from the pack. Within This Is Bracket Racing Elite, we focus on growth year-round, but the gains, they're, they're small, they're incremental during race season for two reasons. Number one, because your attention as a racer is split, right? You've got upkeep, maintenance, travel, all the things involved with the racing season, in addition to a focus on your own growth. And because other racers are working hard at that time too. It's this time of year, this separation season, where putting in the work can really allow you a leg up on the competition. If you're serious about doing just that, and you'd like to surround yourself with a group of knowledgeable trainers and accountable peers with the tools, the resources, the wisdom to help you take that next step, and perhaps even with the occasional kick in the pants to keep you on track, this is Bracket Racing Elite is the answer. We've helped thousands of racers just like you take the next step toward becoming the best version of themselves on the racetrack. Elite can help you do the same. Enrollment is open as of Monday, November 27th, and it closes December 8th. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast with Luke and Jed. I'm Big Jed, Jared Pennington. He's Cool Hand Luke Bogacki. If you're a regular listener, thank you for your patronage. If you're new, you'll probably catch on soon enough. Our goal is to shed some light on the events, news, and issues in sportsman drag racing and the stars within it. Welcome back, or welcome to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast, where we sometimes discuss... U.S. Olympic athletes, adult film stars, sportsman drag racers, and Santa Claus. Ho, ho, ho. Merry <laughs> Christmas. It's a special it. Christmas edition of the podcast. With me, as always, my papadna. Big Jed, how are you, sir? Luke, I am well. I am very well, uh, uh, which is exactly the opposite of what I was for the last week or so. So I'm excited to be well, and I'm excited to be back here on the podcast and talking sportsman drag racing. Man, what a show we have lined up. We, uh, we're going to tackle some, uh, some hard uh, things to discuss, some uh, controversial topics, if you will. And we're going to talk about some big winners in Florida uh, at the most recent SFG event. And then um, we're going to talk about a rich man's pissing match, which is always fun to talk about. So there's a lot of good stuff on this show. This, the, the hot takes are, are steaming from this show. Like as Jed alluded to, we don't, we don't, we tend, we try to make habit of not shying away from the difficult discussions. We have some of those today. Big Jed just, I, I teed it up a little bit and he absolutely put one specific racetrack on blast. I have to say they're deserving stay tuned for that um the rich man's pissing match yeah and a little bit of um i don't know like i don't know where it is that you are listening to this episode but i can just assume it's it's um not balmy it's not warm it's not it's it's not warm here but we're gonna we're gonna bring some sunshine to your day we're gonna talk about 
the five day. We're going to talk about the recent SFG race. I saw people on the live feed in t-shirts. I was jealous. It looked fun. So yeah, that's what we're going to bring. We'll bring some sunshine into your life today. But first. Be jizzle for rizzle. Dead. It is Christmas week, and we've got actual racing to talk about. Yeah. How crazy is that? Legit big dollar bracket racing, courtesy of SFG Promotions uh, via Bradenton, Florida. Walk us through the, the big event. Well, look, it's uh, triple 50s um, with, a, with a 15K uh, warm-up, if you will. And uh, they they have this event at Bradenton, and you know this this is a couple of years old now. And Kyle Riley and the SFG team really hit a hit a home run with uh, location and timing following the Winter Series. <clears throat> um, they 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 really had a great plan last year. And then uh, this year, right here before Christmas, when you would think most of us in the country, even me in Alabama, you know, thinking when it's too cold to race and, but they had picture perfect uh, temperatures down there. And uh, obviously Bradenton is a, is a great facility in itself. And a lot of folks stuck around, did some racing and those guys got it kicked off uh, with their 15 K warmup race uh, with uh, little Mike Bloomfield once again, going to the winner's circle. Uh, Mikey in the wheelie the, truck. Yeah. And in, in the family truckster, um, the, the red S 10, those guys have had for quite a while. They they've had many different combinations in it. They kind of got her leaving hard now and getting after it. Low six second, high five second ETs, I believe. And he got the win over McKenna Brown, McKenna in the Jegs hot rod <clears throat> dragster that, that she's running this year. Um, a good, big final for her McKenna, uh, been going to several of these big money events this year and uh, getting to a to a final round there against uh, little Mike was was a big deal for her. So congratulations to her and congratulations to to Mike too. That's a that's another big win on a, a long list of those things for him. Um, Luke, that that got into uh, the first fifty k. That took him to the first fifty k the next day, and my goodness. I mean, this guy is, you know, he basically quit for nine months, come out of retirement, and has gone nuts. Champ, yes, he has. Champ got the 50K win over another guy that has just continued to go to big money finals, and he's won plenty of those. Come up a little short in this one, I think, was 3,000 red, if I remember right. Gage Birch come up with the, uh, the runner-up in that one. But what about Champ? I mean – Look, it's incredible what he has accomplished in a very short period. Had he raced all year, I mean, based on the results that he's had and the opportunities that he's had them in, had he raced all year, he, he could have possibly mirrored what Jeff Sarah's accomplished. I mean, when you look at uh, wins or final rounds or big, big uh, late round appearances, in these events, in the limited opportunities he gave himself, Champ has, has had an incredible few months. Now, that's actually how I was going to frame this, Jed, was to say if you removed the names Jeff Sarah and Nick Hastings from the discussion, a Stephen McCrory-Gage-Birch final 
feels as representative to 2021 as any two names that you could put out there. Like feels like those two specifically have been dominant all season. And with Champ, that hasn't been the case, but he's been so dominant for the last three months that it feels like he's won everything all season. It's uh, It has been an incredible run from an obviously supremely talented racer. And we've talked about Champ on previous episodes where it just feels like everything is, is coming together and he's at a, at a good point in life to, to just kind of free him up and, and, and perform the way that he's capable of. But I will say this, and we've we actually had a discussion within this is bracket racing elite related to this on some extent. I think it's been really fun to watch from afar the way that he is going about his business because there's you watch on the live feed, there is no gamesmanship. Like his routine is very structured. He he there is no wasted movement, there's no wasted time, like everything seems intentional. He's he's quick, you know, pre-stage to stage, like normally the first car to stage. He is, we talked about it after the, the great American guaranteed million, how the strategy finish line strategy is more or less broadcast. Like, yep, I can go a good bit under and like, here it is basically in every form of it. Here it is. Here's what I, what I'm going to do. I don't think you can beat me. Like that's the way he's laying it out there. And for the last three months, that's pretty accurate. <laughs> yeah. If, if that's what he's been saying, uh, either internally or externally, he's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, he mm-hmm. has been extremely difficult to beat. And congrats to Champ again on another big win and Gage Birch on another big final round. Look, the next 50K happened um, was, was a couple of racers that we don't get to talk about very often here on the podcast. So uh, kudos to them. Mark Kelly got the win over Marilyn Laster. Uh, and the the second or middle 50k and uh, that was huge for for both of those racers um, another I, i'm i'm thinking both of them are from pennsylvania if i remember correctly but i'm not 100 percent sure yeah i know that they're both d1 guys i believe that that's accurate mark specifically I'll, I'll speak to him just because we've got some history mark would always come down to the the winter series events uh, with his father greg and seemingly I don't want to say you never say like always had success. He, he always acquitted himself. Well, right. Was, was deep in those races. I, I knew the name and felt like that's a, uh, just from afar, not getting to race with them every week. I thought that's a guy that, that should win more often than he does. Right. Like makes really good runs. And I don't think racing is like a huge um, priority in his life or hasn't been for the last decade. That's my impression could be wrong. When they got down, my wife and I were watching the live feed, um, you know, and they got down to a dozen or so cars there. She, you know, we always, you know, pick a winner. Mark was my pick. And she kind of looked at me like, who's that? I'm like, I, that, that dude can do it. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, and, uh, to that point he did, he made me look good. Um, I thought it was noteworthy as well. We just sung the praises of, of Stephen McCrory he nearly went back to back fifties here. He was down to six cars total, three cars on the dragster side, turned it one thou red in that round opposite Mark Kelly was a, a bit of a catapult for Kelly to go on, get two more wind lights and ultimately win the 50 grander of his own. Yeah. Again, very noteworthy there about champ. Oh, excuse me. Um, very noteworthy there about champ um, possibly 
going double up on the back-to-back 50s and coming up short there at six cars. And again, as you talked about, Mark Kelly, a very capable racer, I don't think gives himself a, a ton of opportunities on the big stage, but was ready to get out of a little bit colder weather and go to Florida and have a good time. And it worked out very well for him. Um, Luke, so we that takes us to the last 50K and um, – you know, the, the wheelie wagon, Siegel's wheelie wagon, we're all familiar with it. We, we've seen him perform extremely well with it over the years. And seems like anybody that, that gets in that car uh, gives themselves a great opportunity to go win. It, it's, a, it's a mean, mean hot rod, and it's capable of doing very, uh, very good things that you want pictures of when you see the bottom end of that thing and those big wheelies that it does. But Cameron Fredrickson is a young man out of uh, that area down there that, that lives close to Siegel. And uh, it's one that John's taken under his wing. And Cameron's driven pretty much everything he's got, wheelie wagons, dragsters, whatever. He's been running the wagon for quite some time and giving himself a couple of opportunities to do something big. But this is him kicking the door down. Uh, Cameron Fredrickson's a talented young racer got a talented father that has raced for many years and he gets the, the 50 K win in the wheelie wagon. And that was a massive celebration among friends. He's a guy you root for good kid. Um, again, somebody that handles himself very well, which is important to John, you know, him driving his hot rod, got the win over Michael Valley. Uh, Michael's a, a guy that, that we've seen perform well on some big stages in the past. I uh, think he turned it just a couple of thou pink there, putting the win in Cameron's lane. If I remember right, might not have been a red light, but whatever the case was, no, he broke he out a couple, couple of thousand. thousand. Yeah. Broke out a couple of mm-hmm. thousand what it was, but um, Cameron, that was huge for him. Uh, I sent him a congratulatory text and uh, he was, he's very excited and, feels like he got a monkey off his back and you know this is just one of those wins Luke that I expect to to you know really propel him forward to to put himself in this position again and again and again very young racer with a lot of skill so really proud for Cameron and and John Siegel and Jennifer Siegel that was a big big win for them and uh, and I really enjoyed seeing that yeah I agree with that on all fronts Jed I I I don't want to put added pressure uh, on Cameron Fredrickson after this, but I absolutely agree in that as a young man, that's got all the tools has had all the tools for, for a couple of years now. And I could see this being the, the catalyst that kind of breaks down the floodgates. Like I said, I don't want to heap pressure on his shoulder, but it would not surprise me if we're looking back a year or two years from now and talking about a young man that's won three or four of these style events. Right. And, and the confidence that comes with getting it done the first time is, can be instrumental in, in catalyzing that going forward. Yeah, I agree. That first one's got to be the hardest uh, because he's been in this position a couple of times and come up short and um, you know, that, that pressure starts mounting and you, you, you have that internal pressure that you're putting on yourself, which is the worst kind. And, you know, when you get through all that and finally get it done, I think the sky's the limit for Cameron Fredrickson. But really big deal for all those racers. Great, uh, great event, great wins by those guys. And 50K wins to, to win right around Christmas time is a, is a true Good blessing. Time. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an awesome thing to do. And 
Uh, I actually talked to Champ on Wednesday night. I was headed to Gatlinburg and I was uh, hitting some traffic in Chattanooga. And I know Champ knows that area fairly well. So I called him to uh, see if there was a way around it. And uh, when we talked, he was uh, spitting fire. He was about as mad as he could be. He, he had just bumped a perfect reaction, whatever red, ever how much he had in his bump five or whatever. He was perfect on the let go and bumped it red and was just mad as he could be. And that's about the second or third time he's told me that here in this last part of the year. So I just told him, cut the wires of that stupid thing. I mean, if you're letting go perfect, he don't miss it. He might go 20 something every so often. He really don't need to bump down, especially if you don't know you're perfect when you let go and you bump it to five red. So just get rid of it, cut the wires. So I'm hoping he cut the wires. It got him a 50 K win. And then he come up with our red at six cars in the next 50 K. So maybe champ listened. I'm really hopeful that he didn't bump that one thou red at six cars. Is this I'll, your way of taking out. credit for Champ's performance? It did really sound that way, Luke. So, uh, yes, pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. I think I'm the reason that Champ was able to do that. I, I hate to say that, but it hey, was all me. I, I got Roll you. Back. You're my partner. I'll give credit <laughs> where credit is due. Uh, we, if we zoom out from this a little bit, and you alluded to this uh, earlier. This race, location, time of year, this obviously just works. And I feel like I'm torn whether to praise Kyle Riley and SFG for the putting this together as, or just like admonish every other race promoter. Why the hell didn't anyone else think of this? Where else are you going to race this time of year? <laughs> and and obviously question. people, people want to go. You're looking for a reason to get out of the cold. Obviously, it's got tremendous local support as well, but uh, that race doesn't work if you don't get the Snowbirds. And traditionally, the Winter Series has gotten the Snowbirds. Like This kind of picks up, picks up to some extent where the Winter Series left off. Uh, I think we mentioned that to some extent last year, but this just reinforces it. This was a super successful event uh, and, and looks like a very well-run event. And I think we can circle back to an earlier point. We talked about this after the, the, the next most recent SFG event. Like it wasn't long ago that there were rumblings within the, the big dollar racing community that, boy, that, you know, SFG is really, they're, they're on the skits. Like this, this isn't going to last much longer. And, you know, it's, it's a house of cards. Like we heard all of those things after the, the half million dollar race was, was canceled in, uh, in midsummer, we might've even said some of those things, right? Like that was the feel. And then they have the race in Darlington that was, went off really well. And we said, Oh, SFG's alive and well, it's hard to argue that right now. Like this is carried that they've stuck the flag in the ground. Like if, if there was any question, I don't even want to say SFG's back. Cause I don't think they ever left, but this, this is a, a series, a, a promotion company that is looking very, very strong moving forward. Yeah, there's no doubt, Luke. Uh, you know, obviously, anytime you have the amount of events in a season that Kyle has had and the at magnitude that, that he's done it, I mean, the, the huge guaranteed purses and all that stuff, there's plenty of opportunity for failure. And there's plenty of opportunity for people to, to pick your, your model, your business model apart. He's had his share of all of that, some failures and people picking him apart. But I think events like what he just did, 
have stayed true to the foundation that that SFG was built on. Uh, obviously, it was 50 Ks that he did at Piedmont the very first time he come out with it, and it was an incredible event. It went extremely well. It was it was just perfect on all fronts, and you know things have changed and. You know, when he when he's had some success at these things, I don't know what happens within Kyle's mind, but it seems like he wants to go out and better himself or break new ground in racing. Every time something like this happens, this works. This business model works. This entry purse format works. The, the amount of cars that he sets the limits at, which I know we'll talk about shortly, works. Um, Kyle should stick to this business model. Um, I'm sure he's going to do plenty of other big stuff and that's just fine. But I think he, I think he gives himself the best opportunity for success with what he pulled off there in Bradenton and what this whole, uh, promotion was built on. Yeah. And kind of to your point, if there is a a drawback to this structure, it might be that it works too well. And that's what we're going to get into now. Now, uh, I, there's, a, there's, there's an undertone around this stuff. And this isn't exclusive to, to SFG. We're using this weekend's event as a, as a catalyst for the discussion, obviously. But, but we'll get into it. Many, many promoters have dealt with uh, an issue along these lines. But I feel like this is the thing that, that racers are whispering about. And that's what we do. Like put the capital J journalist on our hat, big Jed. Like we talk about the difficult subjects. So let's get right into it. This event again, to use the Bradenton SFG event as an example, this was advertised as a 400 entry maximum event, 200 door cars, 200 dragsters. And it was, uh, I believe announced sold out, you know, a month, a month or more prior to the event. And once we actually get into race day, there's, depending on the day, roughly somewhere in the neighborhood of 450 entries going down the track in round one of an event that was a 400 entry cap maximum. Okay. And it is my understanding that in this specific event, there was no increase to the purse, no increase to the payout. Now, again, this isn't a, an, an, an issue, a dilemma, whatever you want to say, that's exclusive to SFG. Um, the, the spring fling staff went through this a couple of years ago at the 500 grander at Bristol and we called them out on it. Like they oversold the event, um, obviously bring in more revenue. They did increase the racer payback, but not, not to the, to the liking of many of the, several of the racers at the event, like certainly didn't give 100% of that back. Right. And so we called them out, had that discussion. We're going to have that discussion today. Uh, on the flip side of that, the the inaugural Great American Guaranteed Million at Memphis uh, in 2020, they also oversold the event and basically with zero fanfare about it. Um, I believe Big Jed that they we talked about this a little bit on the show. They put like 100% of that increased revenue back into the purse and didn't even tell the racers about it until it was like time to split the money. Like oh by the way, there's an extra. $30,000 in the purse or, you know, depending on, on the day. So there's different ways to go about this, different ways to handle it. My question for you, Jet, strictly from a racer standpoint, okay, the 
the event that you have signed up for, the event that you have pre-entered is oversold. Now, it probably doesn't alter the number of rounds. Like we'll use this, uh, the SFG event as a specific example, right? Instead of 200 door cars and 200 dragsters, let's say that there's, for the sake of simple math, like 225 in each, okay? What that means is that after the re-entry round, when you come up for round two, instead of 150 cars, there's like 168 on each side. It's still a nine round race to get through the door car dragster side. It's still a 10 round race total. Like it's not like an added around to the event. Added cars doesn't necessarily impact the competition or what happens on the racetrack. Obviously at that point, it's added cars is pure profit to the promoter, but we can all see the flip side of that. And Kyle Riley's no exception. Like he's had bad events. Like they've had races where they lost money, significant money. So you could make the argument, they deserve to make money when things go well, right? Specifically, we'll get into the promotion end of this, but as a racer, is this a problem? And at what level or to what extent? So as a racer, yes, it is a problem, Luke. It's a problem when the promoter isn't as transparent as they can possibly be up front. Now, I do have a promotion background, so it's hard for me to just be a racer and look at this from a racer standpoint. Uh, it's really difficult to hit a number and say, this is how many entries I'm going to have because people don't understand racers back out at the last minute. And, you know, it's when you've got a race built around a number <clears throat> and you just get to that number, you're never going to get to that number. You're going to always come up short. So overselling with the intention or thought that people are going to get out and you get back down to your number is a natural thing. So as a racer that's got promotion in his background, I understand overselling. However, when more cars go down the track than you advertise as your maximum number, that means you have taken in additional funds and you have uh, diminished my experience that I signed up for. Now, that could be argued at what number of extra cars does it truly diminish my experience? Neither here nor there, it does on some level diminish my experience. And it's not what I signed up for. <clears throat> I signed up to race 400 or 399 other racers. So in, my question as a pessimist, in that 50 extra that got in, who were they? You know, we're, we're 48 of them freaking world beaters that just sat back and didn't care about your, your maximum number because they knew they were going to get in anyway. Did they get to enter at the gate? Did you know about it ahead of time? Tell me something. Tell me what's going on in your promotion effort and tell me where that extra 50 is coming from and how it happened and what you're going to do to make sure that my experience isn't diminished. Now, with 50 extra racers, more people are getting paid Luke, when you got round money. So we're going to figure up the profits and all those things and what the promoter got to keep. Well, they paid more people because they had 50 more. So more people were in round three when they started getting paid than was going to be. So that's a good thing. But what did, what did you do for me that enhanced my experience or help me understand why that additional 50 got in. And when that is just kept quiet, 
and not uh, put out there, whether it's publicly or even at the event, something. When that's not put out there properly, you know, it pisses me off. It, it, it's aggravating and it pisses me off that I thought I had to hurry up and get in to get in that inside that 400 number when all along you were just going to take whatever showed up. And that yes, isn't the, the lack of transparency, whether it actually is or not, can certainly breed the feeling of a double standard. Absolutely. And at what point, at what point do I say, well, I'm just going to be one of those 50 the next time you have this? Because it's obvious you're going to let me in. At what point do you fix that and say, guys, I screwed up. I, I shouldn't have allowed that. Next year, we're going to sell 425. And that's all we're going to sell. And if 38 people get out the last day, then, you know, I'm going to have 387. And Good that's math. just what's going to go I down. I was trying to figure that up as you went. Good math. Quick. Right. Yeah, that's awesome. And that's just what's going to go down the track. But I'm going to sell 425. And if all 425 shows up, this is what I'm going to do for you, the racer. Because I'm trying to get to 400. But if all 425 show up and go down the racetrack, this is what I'm going to do for you. This is what we're going to do. And I, I think if you make that transparent, and you handle that well up front, the racers are with you, not against you. And I think the way this one played out in particular, I think left a very sour taste in some people's mouth. And Did it would have mine as well. Because I almost, I almost feel like in the minority is we're aligned on this and I'll, I'll get to my piece. Like I, I, I take issue with this uh, as a racer, not, extreme issue, but like, I don't, I don't think this is the right way to handle things, but I almost feel like if there is any talk about this, it's almost from a, a, a vocal minority. Like I correct me if I'm wrong. I get the impression that we're in the minority that, that I, I don't, I don't know that racer, that the average racer maybe doesn't pay attention to this or frankly doesn't care. Am I off base there? No, I think you're hundred percent spot on. Uh, I, and I'm, I'm going to say that it is the vocal minority, but I would say overall, if you polled all 450 of those racers, just how they viewed that, I think you're going to get a negative reply out of the majority. It might only be 51%, but I think if you privately poll those racers, you're going to get you know, negative thoughts out of the majority of the crowd. I, would I don't, assume, I, would assume I don't right. think people, I don't think people like that. Yeah. So just to kind of follow up again, we're, we're aligned from a racer standpoint, the, the 400 entry max is a selling point. It, at least it is for me. Like I don't, we've all been to races that have six, 700 cars. Like I don't personally think that's fun, right? So the limited field actually more attractive to me. And I, I personally, I'm willing to pay a premium to guarantee that, right? Like a race with 300 yes. cars, a race with 400 cars, like far more appealing to me personally. And we can all realize again, as racers, that race promotion is, is a business. In this day and age, it's a big business, right? Now are promoters taking a risk? Can they lose money? Yeah, absolutely. And I don't want to see that as a racer, right? But at the same time, that is part of the risk that you take when going into 
any type of business, but particularly this type of, of endeavor, pre-entry with a, with a cap, I look at uh, as a racer as like, okay, in this case, 400 cars, that's our best case scenario. Like I know that if that race is sold, it is worth the promoter's time. Like that is a significant profit, right? So best case, like the event doesn't um, exceed that max, right? It goes the way that it was on a flyer. Like I know that whoever's putting on that event is a winner. Like everyone's got, everyone's out ahead of here. Now, when that can't happen, I feel like the, the increased revenue, to your point, it, it should go back into the purse or at least a significant portion of it. And you brought up a good point that the numbers are a little bit skewed, but at a race of this magnitude, if you have 50 extra entries on the weekend at $750 a piece, that's quick math. That's $37,000, an extra 25 buybacks a day times 250 times three different days. Like it's, you get to 50 grand really quick. That's not completely uh, net net profit at the end, right? Because there is some increased round money, but it's fair to say that that's a lot more profit coming out of the event directly to the promoter. You better believe it. Right. So let's flip the scales just a little bit now because there are, it's not as cut and dry as we like to think of it from a racer standpoint. And, and you alluded to this in, in some respect. From a promotion standpoint, feel free to jump in here at, at any point, Jed, because we've both been on both sides of this. I feel like as a promoter, the pre-entry process, while it's, it's, it's got its pros and cons, right? It is valuable because for lack of a better term, like it kind of, I don't want to say locks racers in, but, help, but commits racers to an event, right? Pre-entry helps in the event of a less than stellar forecast. Because even if you provide 100% refunds, and, and most, most races do, like when you pre-enter a race month in, months in advance, you're planning on going. And until the, the forecast gets bad enough that the promoters have to revamp the schedule or postpone the event completely, like you're kind of in, right? Like it's, it's just easier to, it's, it's much easier on a, from a promotion standpoint to not get quite as skittish when the forecast isn't great having a pre-entry maximum and having an event, you know, sold out. Well, even if it's not sold out, it allows a promoter to better plan the event logistically. Like you have a pretty good idea of who's coming, how many cars are coming and how can I, how can I run this event to cater to that? Right. Plus from a marketing standpoint, like, let's be completely honest, pre-entry creates scarcity. Like if there are only 400 entries available, then there feels like a need, well, I, I got to get one before they sell out, right? Oh, yeah. and, and just again, from a logistics standpoint, you can set a cap in a way that you, run, you, you prevent yourself from running out of daylight, um, parking room at some facilities. Like that's obviously a, an issue at the race that I put on. Like we limit entries because we don't have any room for anymore, right? Um, the flip side of that, from a promotion standpoint, Pre-entry is a pain in the butt because A, it obviously puts a ceiling on profits. Like you are, when you cap a race at, at, let's say 400 cars, you're saying this is as good as it can get, right? So there's no home run beyond that, right? And at the same time, what I don't think people realize from the outside about the pre-entry process, it is a ton of administrative work. And time suck because you've got not only the sign up process, but inevitably there's a tremendous amount of turnover, specifically the week of. Like there's 
it's a lot to keep up with, right? And from that standpoint, I understand, like you had mentioned, Ted, the the idea behind overselling the event. Because it, let's be frank, if you don't, if you just cap this at 400 when it fills up, that's it, that's 400, that's what we're taking, like, you're subject to have 350 cars, right? And again, yes. that that $50,000 profit that we were just talking about, like that works the other way too, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's 50 grand less. So that's not a good thing. So you, you, you do build in some cushion there. Like I understand the idea of overselling to the point of like, I think we're still going to end up right around 400 cars. Right. And you want to, you want to maximize the the field and let's be frank, like as a promoter, you don't want to leave anybody out that wants to come, particularly if you end up with, without a full field and you've turned people away. Right. So hence the, the common situation, the event gets oversold. Again, we've seen it multiple times before. It's not exclusive to SFG. The problem to your earlier point, Jed, is how often can you get away with this? Because overselling a race with any degree of consistency, it cheapens the pre-entry process. Like, when you, how could you look not look back on this as a racer and question the scarcity the next time around? Like, is there? Do I really need to pre-enter this race in advance? Because it seems like I can just get in whenever I want. So then if there's no scarcity, you take away all the advantages to the promoter of pre-entry. Like ultimately, I think this sort of fixes itself because I don't think you can have your cake and eat it too, right? You either, as a promoter, you either take the risk and say, I'm just going to swing open the gates, whoever comes, comes. Or you put a cap on it to kind of guarantee some things on your end, but put a ceiling on the profit. You can't like what happened last week and what's happened before is you had your cake and ate it too. And I don't, while that, that may look good in the short term, I, I tend to think it's not sustainable. I think it self-corrects. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Uh, that's, that's a hundred percent accurate on all those takes Luke. And, um, you know, as a, as a racer, again, I'm perfectly fine with a few more cars going down the racetrack than you advertised. If you just tell me that plan up front and how that's, how that's going to work. I get that. And I think racers are smart enough now and they don't go into enough different types of formats that they get that. I think your average racer understands that you're not just going to hit a number and, and just whatever you think you want as a max number, you're not going to just hit that perfectly. It's not possible. So I, again, if you just discuss that plan with me, then I'm cool with it. But those things just aren't getting handled like that consistently across different events. When I was, when I was kind of thinking through this, Jed, I'd have zero insight to, to this decision but I'm, I wonder now, having gone through this, like uh, Peter Biondo and, and, and the late Kyle Seipel went through a similar situation. You know, what, what was that? Two, three years ago at Bristol. And shortly thereafter, they did away with the pre-entry model. And I feel like, again, I, I didn't have, I don't have any insight to this, didn't have any discussion around it at the time, didn't completely understand the decision at the time. But I wonder if on their end, they didn't look at this exact same thing and say, you know what? Like, Maybe maybe it's because we're in a in a financial um, um, situation where we could absorb a loss 
if, if, and if that came to fruition, or maybe it's just because like, look, we've built this brand. We've been, like, got this following. Um, why would we want to put a ceiling on, on potential profits? Like, let's just swing open the gates and trust that that racers will come and, and do away with any, um, any, any, what's the word that I'm looking for? Any sense of that kind of double standard, any sense, like, here's what it is like plain and simple. This is what you're going to get when you come, whoever comes, comes, whoever doesn't, doesn't here's the race. Yeah. You know, Luke, I, I, I look at caps. I look at that cap number for many different reasons at many different places. I know having been on the backside with Peter and Kyle and talking about this, like Galat, they felt like 385 is all we're going to get in there comfortably. Right. We could really create a mess if if we open that up and 485 show up. And then out of that 385, how many have two cars in a trailer or three cars in a trailer? If I do 485, is the additional 100 going to be all single rigs? You know, there's a lot goes into that and a lot of things that you have to think about. So I get that. I get caps for certain reasons, but, you know, for a, for an event in Bradenton, Florida with plenty of room in December, that cap almost feels like false advertising. Like you were trying to trick me into hurrying up and entering and getting you my money when you had zero intentions of keeping it at a number. So caps to me, you got to be careful with those things and make sure that again, you're doing them for the right reasons. And I'm not saying that was Kyle's intent at all, but as a pessimist by nature, that's, that's what I'm thinking. That's it's leading me down that path. And you just, as a promoter, you just don't ever want that. You don't want racers to feel like they've ever been tricked in any shape, form or fashion or sold a bill of goods that you didn't deliver. So be careful with those caps and uh, swinging the gates open and letting whatever's going to show up, show up. You know, if that's what you're going to do anyway, just advertise that and do it. And they're still coming. The, the racers are still going to show up. Uh, we do pre-entry in our business model because we like to get people committed we like to make it easy at the gate it's very when you have a large number we have four or five hundred racers or entries show up and that's very challenging at the gate mm -hmm. when that stuff isn't handled up front and it creates long lines and weights and we don't take people's money and invest it and make nine percent interest and all the things that we've been accused of over the years it's all sitting in one account it's all 100% refundable, no questions asked. If you don't show up at our race, we say, well, this person didn't show up, so we send them their money. This person didn't show, we send them their money. You don't have to call us looking for it. We're very open and transparent with that, and we like to know what's coming so we can adjust as needed up front and make sure that we communicate different plans if there are some to the racers. And that has worked very, very well for 15 going on 16 years at any time if we messed around with people's money and and actually did anything that looked like we tricked them i think that that whole system would be a big failure yeah. and would never work again so um i think that needs to be everybody's intent when they set a cap 
when they do pre-entry, no pre-entry, whatever they do, I think promoters need to make sure they're as transparent as they can be and as honest as they can be, and your business model will be accepted. One thing from a racer standpoint that I actually have come to like about the pre-entry process and and like most racers, I think at least of, of our age, like I was, I was pretty dead set against it at one point, right? Like it was unnatural and I don't want to give away my money a month in advance or however long. Right. But I will say this, particularly at the races that are a stretch financially, I'll, I'll just use like the great American million as an, as an example. Right. I paid my entry fee in full, like nine months prior to the event. And keep in mind, like I didn't have that money for nine months. I could have done something to make that money, make, make money with that money for nine months. Right. Like that's, that's, that's the logic, but that is not the, um, the, the emotion behind that. The emotion behind that is that when I go to that race, my tab is not $5,000 because I paid three grand of it nine months ago. My tab is $2,000, $1,500. Like it's, it's a lot of money, but it's much easier to swallow, right? In the moment. Yes. And I'm just telling you like that, it weighs differently on me throughout the weekend because I think inherently, and I, I, I'm not saying that this is the right mindset to have, but I think we all have that number in the back of our mind. Like, what do I need to win back here to kind of wash out, right? And ultimately, like I needed to win five grand, right? But I wasn't thinking about it like that. Like it just makes, I spent that money so long ago that I forgot about it. And I yep. feel like in the moment that takes some of the edge off of those races for me. And I assume it does for everyone to some extent, like whether you want to admit that or not. And again, like that's not the most um, financially sound way of looking at things. It's very much an emotional way of looking at things, but it resonates for me. I think it does for most people, Luke. I really do. Uh, I've heard it time and time and time again over these 15 years that, you know, I know people beat y'all up about pre-entry, but I like it. We we take our deadline up to three or four weeks before the event. So you can do it early if you like to get it out of the way, or you can just pay that right up until the, the three or four weeks leading up to your trip to the event. But when you get to the gate, and really all you have is is what business you do there from a buyback standpoint or purchasing a gambler's race or something. Our racers feel like they're they're not taking on that big hit all at one time at the event and, and the, the mental pressure that that puts on you when you know you might have spent a little more than you should. So I think our racers have come to like our format and I think all racers uh, given the option, get to choose what they like, whether you like to pre-enter, whether you don't. But in this particular scenario that we're discussing, you you basically had to pre-enter if you wanted to race and you, you advertise the events, quote unquote, sold out. And then 50 more racers go down the track than what you told me was going to be there. It just, you know, it just, I don't think there was anything sneaky or dirty on Kyle's part. I think he's been really upfront and done everything he said he would do uh, and throughout his promotion and uh, kudos to him for that. But it just, it looks a little dirty and it, it looks a little sneaky. And the last thing Kyle wants or needs is to have that uh, thought in anybody's head. So I just like to see a little more transparency on the plan 
and just lay it out for me and let me decide, you know, how I want to, how I want to handle this event if I want to go or not go, but uh, don't, don't tell me that I couldn't go because you were sold out. And now I see you let 50 others in. I'm sitting my butt at the house. When I, yeah, no, I, I, I could have showed I up think, and raced. I think what you laid out, Jed, is so the, the simple and obvious answer is let's be transparent about what we're doing. And if there is added money, like at least the majority of it goes back into the purse. Like, I think that's the simple answer. I do have a proposed like workaround from a promotion standpoint, and I'm interested to hear you or anybody else poke holes in this. So let me, let me try to walk through this rather than selling a pre-entry based on scarcity. What if we offered a pre-entry discount? And I know that that's not a new idea, right? That's something that SFG has done for a long time. So, but that's the selling point is not like, Hey, you've got to be one of the first, you know, 400 to enter. It's if by entering by this date, you get, you know, however much money off of your entry. And then rather than have a cap, we have a, a minimum. Let's again, use this event in Bradenton as an example. Let's say that the minimum for us to have this event and be worth our while, like we have to have 270 entries. Okay. Well, once that minimum's met, then the pre-entry is off. Like you don't get that discount anymore. Right. After that, anybody can enter, whether it's in advance or at the gate, but the, the fee is more. And anytime after that, like once we sell the 270, the race is on like guaranteed whatever. And obviously at that point, the more entries that come in, the more profit it is the promoter, but the promoter is fulfilling his word. Like you, you, you're not selling there's, you're not even giving the impression of selling your racers, a false bill of goods that to me mitigates the risk because, Hey, we've got this minimum number. Like we got to have this amount to make it work. That's guaranteed. And yet at the same time, eliminates the profit ceiling. Like it feels like the best of both worlds. What's what am I missing? What's the problem with that format? Uh, there's nothing that's a problem with it. And I, I happen to promote a race that's very, very similar to what right. you just laid out. We didn't, we didn't rehearse this. Um, this <laughs> we didn't discuss this, but the you Labor Day isn't 250, an original idea. I thought it was onto something. <laughs> the Labor Day 250K is guaranteed $100,000. Anything over 275 entries in 25 car increments, um, the purse continues to rise. And um, so if we sell more, we pay more in that particular event, but we've got a guarantee that we're going to pay you. So this year, Dave Harvey Jr. won $110,000 because there were more cars than, than the 275 number. And the purse increased to, to uh, uh, $10,000 more. We had two more entries than our minimum number uh, or, or our guaranteed number, which again, it doesn't, it pays a hundred thousand, no matter if two cars show up or 274. But once you get over that 275 number, we had two more entries than that and paid 10,000. That's $2,000 that we took in. We paid 10,000 extra uh, with that. So, you know, there's absolutely zero wrong with the promoter saying, if some extra cars show up, this is going to be better for you, the racer, than it is for me, the promoter. That's okay. And that's the model that we have. And if that car count continues to rise, it's going to continue to produce 
less profit for us than it will for the racers at that point from that point on and that's perfectly okay we're we're very happy at our 275 number we know that clears us and makes it worth doing for us and from that point on basically the racers are the only ones winning and i don't see a thing in the world wrong with that so i think any promoter could adopt that uh, type of business model or format and uh, i believe the racers appreciate that i'm sure they do yeah no i i think the transparency is the biggest and like I say not that there is a impropriety it's the impression of yeah. impropriety that that you want to avoid all right so that was the main topic for today's show obviously we spent more time on it than i necessarily had intended we've got a handful of quick hitters big jed and i want to tee you up for this i teased this a little bit on on last episode um there is a like one particular racetrack that you just you're ready to tee it up like put them on blast Let, let's hear it luke um and i silly me i don't even know what they go by maybe it's tulsa raceway park or whatever it is it's in tulsa that's yeah. yeah it used to be osage casino i think it's just tulsa raceway park again but yeah let's hear it grill them well, I saw a little rumbling on Facebook uh, about someone that was struggling to get their money from Tulsa and they received their winnings. And it was like three months after they won it. And I'm thinking, what? So I come in and I pay you on the spot to compete for your purse. And when I leave there, you tell me congratulations on your win. You'll get your money in the mail and you'll get it when you get it. I, I, how is that even acceptable? So I get how NHRA works and, and we all understand how that system is what it is and people accept it. It's just a little bit different. But this is not, this is just a bracket race and they're bracket series. So I'm reading that and I'm like, I'm blown away, Luke. I mean, it's taking this guy three months to get, and it was like, it was, it wasn't even, it was like 300 bucks. I mean, I don't even know what it was, but it was, it wasn't even a whole lot of money that, you know, they could have just handed him cash or wrote him a check right there at the racetrack. So I see in the, so it intrigues me and I go down through the, through the uh, responses and replies. And I see that there is a junior dragster racer that won their very first event of the season. Now this, I see this on Facebook in, I don't know, Luke, when I bring this to your attention, was it last month? Was it in November? This is a bad uh, look. Yeah. I mean, I bring it to your attention and it, he won the first race they had of the year. And then he won oh. another couple and he hasn't been paid yet. <laughs> and I, I think I told you about this in November, maybe early November. Yeah. That's why it's on the show, but. Luke, uh, it's a junior dragster racer. <laughs> How much freaking money did they win? Right. And, and, and it's, it's the future of our sport. And it's somebody that I promise you has way more invested in their racing program than they will ever get back. It's a junior dragster. I got two of those raggly son of a guns. <laughs> uh, you're never going to get it back. You're going to sell it for 50% of what you got in it if you're lucky and you're racing for $150. 
in most cases, maybe less. And they are depriving this young man of his winnings for like six, seven months. And they're calling, they're asking for it. You're going to get it. We're, yeah, we got to get our paperwork straight. We got to get you, get you paid. What? How does that happen? How can you not keep up with the freaking 15 or 20 racers you got to pay on a weekly basis and not get them their freaking money? So I don't know the people at Tulsa, and I hate to run them down like this, but that is very poor management, and it is very poor, or it's a lack of appreciation for the people that are supporting your business is what it is. And it's unacceptable. That's their paycheck. When they win, that's their paycheck. And they, by God, deserve it. And that is absolutely ridiculous that you can't get them their money any sooner than that. And it's a shame. And I would have extreme difficulty in supporting a facility that took months and months to pay me and reward me for my uh, efforts of winning. Whew. All right. I, I... Sorry, Ben. I hate to be that Mark, guy. It has been a while since we got a bona fide Jed rant on the show. That was a good one. But I, I, I mean, I can't. How can you not agree? Like this is justified. This is a bad, bad look for for Tulsa Raceway Park. And but I will say this, Jed. This is. I don't. I don't want to overstate this. But this is a becoming a widespread issue. I feel like many racetracks and or series have gone to a pay by mail format under the guise of of COVID, right? To that point, um, and, and let me let me just I'll 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 defend NHRA briefly here because NHRA national events have always been this way, right? Never paid at the gate. But I will say, by and large, NHRA national event checks just about beat me home, right? They are, it, it's, I would much prefer to leave the, the facility with the money. Don't get me wrong, but they're good about it, like organized. It, it shows up by the end of the week. Now, specific to this season, I think with, with the, well, I'll just say this, with the lone exception of Summit Motorsports Park at Norwalk, which I, I think we could agree most many people would argue might be the best run facility in the country. Okay, I won their division race, got paid on the spot. With the exception of that, every divisional event, which that's a different structure, right? The NHRA is the tracks pay those purses independently. Every divisional event, with the exception of Norwalk that I left the season, I believe. Um, maybe with the exception of gateway as well, but I didn't win at gateway. So it was a little check. Every other one was a pay by mail. Every one of them, Jed, I had to follow up on more than a month after the event. And to your earlier point, this is if, if you can take my money at the gate and, and you're comfortable having an employee pass that money back and forth, you can pay me when I leave. Yes. Just simplify this process and avoid public relations nightmares like this one. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, again, as I stated, the NHRA model is what it is, but it's accepted. It's almost like you expect that 
and quite frankly, uh, there's there's very few people that leave those events with any money coming to them. Right. Um, and certainly not significant money. Right. Yeah. So that, you know, that I don't understand that, how that works. And I'm not here to tear it down because that's been their model for many years. But this is local bracket racing. This is not necessarily littered with people with hundreds of thousands of dollars invested in their racing operation. It's littered with people that spent $75 in hopes of getting 50 back so they can go to Burger King on their lunch break this week. Yep. Uh, and, and for you to hold their money hostage for absolutely no reason for not weeks, Luke, months is utterly ridiculous. It's unacceptable. And it, it's a, it's a business model that, any other operation in the world would fail with and somehow Tulsa is staying open with it. They must be the only option for the people in that area or something. I don't get it. I don't know why anyone would support that. And again, I, it's not the, it's not our practice to tear down facilities and try to get them closed. And I'm not, definitely not trying to do that. I'm trying to get some management in place that understands how important it is to get the racers whatever they've got coming what it means to them throughout the week so they can come back the next time you're open management has to understand that and it just makes me think that whomever is in charge hasn't been on that end of it mm. you know those people in charge at these racetracks need to have lived that in some shape form or fashion Maybe not been a racer there every week, but at least come to the races with somebody and understands, you know, when you, when you scrap and fight and stay up till 1130 at night, putting your transmission in because you work till seven o'clock and you beat your brains out to get head gaskets on the car and you did two days shipping on them. So you make sure it's ready for the event, all that stuff that they work so hard to get there for, and you hold their money when they win. It's unacceptable and it has to be changed. Somebody's got to take charge out there and get it fixed. Now let's just create a little sense of, of synergy here. Tulsa Raceway Park, which we just put on blast, NHRA Division 4 facility. Last year, we talked at length about the money that Roger Brogdon, his company, Roof Tech, and his partner, Owens Corning, poured into. NHRA Division Four racers, specific to Competition Eliminator, it's $50,000 to win the Competition Eliminator Points Championship. That left Division Four went to the Great Northwest to Cody Lane. We talked about that as well. In addition to that, a year ago, uh, Roger Brogdon tapped, tacked on an additional $10,000 to the champion in every Lucas Oil Series chance class in Division Four. It was absolutely incredible. And as a beneficiary of that, like cannot begin to explain how much the division four racers appreciated that. And honestly, I know that Roger has done something with competition eliminator specific to division four for several years, nothing that quite matched the, the massive purse of last season, but there was a part of me that thought, okay, like that was cool that that's not sustainable, right? There's, there's, there's no, there's, there's no kickback on that. Why would someone continue to do that? And so I kind of thought it might just go away or at least get reduced, 
Boy, Big Jed, did I miss on that one. Not only is Roger Brogdon and Roof Tech and Owens Corning back for 2022, they have upped the ante. Now, I don't believe, it is my impression, that they will not be involved in the other uh, Lucas Oil Series categories in 2022, but they will be involved in Competition Eliminator. Jed, the 2022 Division Four Competition Eliminator Division Champion will receive $100,000 courtesy of Roger Brogdon and this program. But wait, that is literally one third of the total purse. Second place in the division, 50 grand. Third, fourth, fifth, sixth in the division, $25,000 each. Seventh and eighth. 15 grand each. Big Jed, the ninth and 10th place finishers in Division Four Competition Eliminator season standings earn $10,000. Just to put that into perspective, the world champion in Competition Eliminator earns $10,000. The 10th place finisher in Division Four earns $10,000. Courtesy of Roger Brogdon, Roof Tech, and Owens Corning. Pretty incredible stuff. Like I felt like this added a great deal of intrigue a year ago, and this is just going to pour fuel on the fire. Okay. Doesn't the top fuel champion win a hundred grand? I think it's two fifty. I think Pro Stock might get a hundred. Okay, might be Pro Stock. I knew I saw one of those big chase with a hundred. I mean. And again, competition eliminator is no budget economy class. Okay. I mean, this is, <laughs> this is expensive racing. These are, these are $200,000 race cars uh, and not all of them, but a bunch of them, but a hundred thousand dollars to win division four is unbelievable. And again, you talk about basically no return, no incentive, for Roger Brogdon to to put this together and pay the 50,000 and surely it's going to go away. And all he does is double the winners alone and then going to pay down the line extremely well. I mean, in a normal year, Luke, let's just put prize money aside. Let's say that it is normal prize money. How many people chase division Four's championship in competition eliminator? Yeah. Without this, there 15? might be a dozen. Right. Okay. Yeah. So you say a dozen, I say 15. Now I'm going to pay the 10th place guy 10 grand, what he would win to win the world. Uh, this should lend itself as we saw it do this year to the best competition, the best cars, the, the biggest fields. And that's really all the motive that Roger has. He, you know, he's not getting a return on this. There's nothing coming back his way as a result of, pouring his money into this class he's really just doing it for the spirit of competition and to see what he can get generated for you know if i'm a racetrack owner and i'm in hra and i'm you know i'm having these divisionals i'm thinking thank you so much roger i mean he's he's creating outside interest he's creating more butts in the seats he's obviously creating more entry fees I mean, all it, it's lending itself to success for his division just through his generosity 
and it's certainly going to lend itself to the best possible racing uh, for the competitors and the fans. So by and large, this is a, an incredible gesture on his part. And it's, it's going to, it's going to come with great reward for the people that just get to sit back and watch it play out like me. So I'm excited about it. Can't wait to have some discussions about it throughout the year next year. I think it's easy to sit back and look at something like this as this one dude with way too much money that doesn't know what else to do with it. And maybe that's, maybe that's the case. Like there is no tangible benefit to this, but it is to your point, you can't look at this. I don't care what your level of competition, like this is not a negative. This is good for our sport. It's good for that class. And that's, I think my, my broad takeaway on this is this is not specifically Roger Brogdon, but this is the reason that competition eliminator is not going away because a decade ago, it felt like this class was very much on the edge of extinction, right? And there were talks about that. The reason that it hasn't gone away and the reason that I don't think it will go away anytime in the foreseeable future is that the nature of that category, it's, it's not an inexpensive class to run, right? So the competitors within it are by and large, uh, wealthy or at least financially stable individuals, right? And there's no other reason. There's no way you could justify the amount of money that goes into running that category for the purses that NHRA offers, right? Like it is something that they love the challenge of making whatever oddball combination it is, like just the fastest one in the country, right? And and the in innovation and ingenuity, like it is a really cool class and the people that get into yeah. it, get into it. Simply and, said, Luke, you cannot fake your way through competition. No, you can't pretend you've got money to spend and you can't <laughs> pretend you've got good equipment. You have yeah. to have both of those. And you can't pretend you're an innovator because I think it takes all three, right? Yes, good point. And to, to that end, so the class is full of these individuals. And when you combine that with the passion that that competition base has for that category like this oozed through in the discussion that we had with frank aragona after his championship a year or two ago like just how passionate he is about competition eliminator and that's not unique to frank that's not unique to roger like this is what they love and they want to do anything possible to see it be sustained and and grow including pour tremendous amounts of money into it, not only into their operation, but into the class as a whole. Like that's, that's the reason that this isn't going away. And, and if anything, over the last decade, I think it's fair to say competition eliminator has thrived as a result of that. Yeah, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. It's a, it's a sport that uh, is gaining awareness, you know, as I'm in a sport, it's a class that's gaining awareness uh, for a long time um, competition eliminator. And uh, what, what was it called in NHRA um, modified? Um, it was a class that was not understood very well. It was, it was a class that people just didn't get like, you know, are they, are they leaving on the top bulb? They're leaving on the bottom bulb. What is this whole CIC? He said it's, it's complicated eliminator, right? Yeah. You know, what is this whole CIC mess and, you know, how does one guy run this number and this number? So it's a class that people just have discarded 
as a rule because they don't understand it. But what the, things like this are piquing people's interest. And I think the awareness for that class and how it works is as high now as it's ever been. And, you know, people like Roger Brogdon and, and other participators in that class, uh, you know, the Brad Plewards of the world, those people are, are interesting to watch and, and see how they're uh, helping the class grow. And I think just all that bringing awareness to the class has created more participants, number one, and it's certainly creating more eyes on it, which uh, is making the participants happy because nobody likes to race in front of nobody. So um, that's just helping the class wholeheartedly. And, you know, then you throw a couple hundred grand, 200, 300 grand at it and it helps it and it's even more gooder. So uh, can't wait to see this play out. I'm fully yeah. expecting your announcement that you're, uh, you're going competition eliminator racing in 2022. I've talked with a couple of racers that are like seriously considering diving into competition not competition eliminator racers that like hey the money's pretty intriguing um yeah and it's um it's cool like just from our standpoint as a as a interested observer when you combine the money the cars the personalities and just like the kind of uh i don't know eccentric vitriol like we talked about the freaking competition eliminator message board and just the mudslinging like the, the drama that is going to surround this is going to be epic. Like as a forget as a racer, forget as a fan, as a content producer, this is good for us, big Jed. We're going to have some things to talk about. Yeah, we're going to have plenty to talk about. And, and again, I have uh, had, um, I guess, uh, I don't know the right word to put here, but demeaning uh, comments about this category. Like it's a rich man's pissing match and that's what it is. Fair. But, that's pretty freaking cool. I mean, I like to watch a rich man's pissing match. Um, it's kind of like Yellowstone. I like to watch Yellowstone. Well, that's a rich man's pissing match. That's it's all about power and who's got it and who gets to display it. And this category is going to be much like that. And these guys are uh, are going to get after each other, both verbally and on the racetrack. So I'm uh, I'm looking forward to it, and it's going to give us plenty of content. I'm here for it. Pass the popcorn. We began this episode, Big Jed, with SFG discussion. Let's close with SFG discussion. They made an announcement prior to the event at Bradenton that we spent so much time talking about. Um, and this was was shortly after or, or on the heels of the assumption. I don't know, even know exactly where this stands, but the assumption that Palm Beach International Raceway is, is about to be no more. Uh, I don't know exactly where that stands now, but assuming that it is not, and that they do not continue that, that the, that the five day of 2021 was in fact the last, uh, West Palm beach slash Moroso five day SFG made a, made an announcement early in December says that, uh, Hey, we're, we're in the beginning stages of bringing back the winter series, the five day, It'll, it would be at Bradenton, assuming of course, that, uh, that PBIR is no more. And what I thought was super interesting about this Jed was what they have laid out is a throwback, a return to basically the original winter series format in that it would be single entries per day. Um, they had the initial rollout was no buybacks. I think they've backed up a little bit on that, but it would not be your typical, certainly not your typical SFG event, 
and really not the norm for big dollar bracket racing in this decade. It's a throwback to a, a later stage. I dig it, but I was surprised by it. What are your thoughts? Yeah, the same, same thoughts. Um, you know, with the, with the rumors that the five day is, is going away. And this was the last one. Um, you, you had to think somebody was going to kind of take it over and, and put something together. Uh, I didn't envision this and I didn't envision it coming from SFG, but quite honestly, Luke, it, it doesn't appear to be stepping on any toes. It, it does just look like it's uh, it's picking up where the, the five-day tradition is leaving off. And I think it's a great idea. I love the idea. I love the time. I love the, the, um, the opportunity for points champions to, to be crowned. I love the fact that if, uh, if you win a runner-up in a 2022 SFG event, that you qualify to be their first SFG world champion. I think people are, are into the points thing. They, they want to, they want to know they don't have to win to win. So, um, I, I just, I think all around, it's a great idea. And, you know, Kyle seems to have, uh, have gotten out front of everybody that might've had some thoughts of doing this and he's going to get to continue the five day and it should work out very well for him as well. And if I'm an event, that is around this event uh, with knowing the five day was going away and I'm an event in the, the general Southern part of the country where people put it on their schedule to attend. Um, I am thankful for what Kyle is proposing here and what he looks appeared to be about to do, because I think it's going to lend me, uh, it's going to get me more customers uh, for my events prior to uh, the, the traditional, traditional five days. So I'm thankful for that. If I'm one of those promoters or track owners and, uh, as a racer to know that you can go winter series racing and you've got, uh, four 25 K's and a, and a warm up deal to start for this, uh, this five day, this first five day attempt pretty darn cool. And, um, I think Kyle's got something here. Yeah, I, I dig it. It's, it's interesting because I think uh, racers of, of our age, for lack of a better way to say it, Jed, like we still romanticize the five day, the winter series, but in full transparency for the last decade plus, it hasn't been what it once was maybe longer than that. Right. Like I feel like the heyday of Moroso really ended as I began to get on the scene and that's 20 years ago. Right. Um, and I don't know that, what that event was specifically in the eighties and nineties. I don't know that that's replicable today, right? Like the racers are going to converge on the million dollar races, not necessarily the furthest race South at the time of year where no one else can race. Like, I just feel like it's a little bit different time, but with that said, I think there's enough of us that still romanticize it. And the event at the SFG event last weekend proves that there are enough of us wanting to get out of the cold that a race that time of year down South will work. Um, I think it'll be different. I did think, and this is circling back, Jed, I thought it was a very interesting zag from SFG to basically put the feelers out for an event that is not double entry that may or may not have buybacks. Like this is the, the double entry format is something that ultimately SFG really 
popularized, right? And, and brought back into the fold. Um, and now seemingly every other event has, not every other event, but the majority of big dollar races have kind of come around to that and adopted that format. And when everybody is kind of in line, here comes Kyle Riley with the complete zag to it. Like, I think that end of it's smart in terms of, okay, let's do something different. Now, my question is, will it resonate to their market? As I mentioned in the beginning, this really appeals to me. Like the typical SFG structure to me personally, not that appealing. This, it's a long way from home, but I'm interested, right? Um, and I've read uh, racers responding like, hey, it's, that's a long trip south for one shot. Like, I don't know that that's necessarily it, but here's the, the what's going to be really interesting to watch if this comes to fruition is that SFG is a brand built its following on the platform of lower entry fees for big purses. And the, the way that you can make that work financially is double entries, same car, same driver, massive fields, massive buybacks. If you eliminate double entries, perhaps eliminate buybacks, the only way to make that work is you have to raise the entry fee. So now that platform that you've kind of kind of built that reputation, that brand that you've built, lower entry fees, big purses, that's not replicable in this in this instance. Does that work for the SFG following, for the market that they've established? I think that will be really interesting to see. Uh, it does not work for the for the SFG uh, stereotypical customer. Uh, however, Luke, I don't think that's who they're trying to appeal to here. Fair. I think, I think they're, I think they've got the five-day market crowd um, upset, looking for somewhere to go, already dreading next November when they don't have the five-day. Uh, you know, obviously it disappeared for a little bit, came back, and it seems like it's been very popular. I'm not sure why it has to end. Obviously, at that facility, I get it, but um, just seems like it could have been carried on and. That's what Kyle's capitalizing on, and he is going to uh, just try to appeal to that particular market. And, the, you know, you alluded to it. You have to raise the entry fee. So let's don't fool ourselves into thinking there won't be a buyback. There will be a buyback. You'll just pay it up front. And, you know, he'll have to raise the entry fee to to make the business model work and, and make it worth doing. So it'll be a little bit higher entry fee than a typical SFG customer is accustomed to, and it'll definitely be a different format, but I think it's going to fit right in where five-day traditionalists like it to be with second chance races instead of buybacks and, you know, an opportunity to, to win a good purse where the field's getting cut in half round after round. I'm not sure if, the, if that no buyback model will stay. Obviously, that has been something that that is going on down there for years and years and years around the five day events. So, uh, I would like to see him keep that. I don't. I don't think Luke. I don't know what the entry fees have to be. I haven't run a run a number or put a pencil to it. But let's say the entry fee needs to be a an additional hundred and fifty dollars or two hundred and fifty dollars for the week. I mean, freaking people leaving their home going to Florida and hanging out for two or three weeks and racing. I don't think that that's going to scratch them. Fair, uh, fair. And, so and, I think those people are going to enjoy it. 
be completely frank. Personally, I am here for it. I call me an old head. I would like to see more races along those formats. But yeah, think- and it's possibly something you'll go to, Luke. I right. mean, you're, you're talking about a guy from Southern Illinois that that likes what he sees and it would intrigue you enough to drive to South Florida and race. So uh, I think it'll work. I, I think Kyle should stick to that original thought and format, put it on paper, make it work, and people will, will enter and, and he'll have a good five-day event. All right, Jed, we managed to gas bag for well over an hour on what I thought was a very slow week. So I think that's it. I think that's the show. You got anything else? Man, I don't have anything else. Uh, just um, enjoyed. I've, I've been off a couple of weeks. Uh, I, we had a week off together two weeks ago. And then last week I was uh, struggling with a little bit of strep throat and uh, couldn't make the show you did uh, the interview by yourself so good to be back Luke great man this was a good show I mean we we talked about some good stuff right here um, we we talked about some important topics so this is just what I needed to get me right back in the flow get going again right here at Christmas time get me all fired up so um, unless you got anything else we will we'll wrap this thing up in style like we do all right let's do it All right. Well, that's it, guys. Again, thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, Certainly appreciate all the wonderful sponsors that help bring the show to you. And uh, we we ask you to support those folks because they are supporting what uh, we love to do. And that's talk about sportsman drag racing. So look to those companies and give them your support anytime you can. We would appreciate that very much. And I know they would as well. Um, Luke and I would love to hear from you on the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast Facebook page. If you've got an opinion on some of the stuff we talked about, if you want to keep it private, you can send us a private message. But if you just want to put it out there for the world to see, we'd love a public message. Just put it out there and let's get some people talking about it and responding and everyone uh, chime in on some of the stuff we talked about here on the show today. We would love to hear your feedback. Uh, Luke, this is um, probably going to be the final opportunity to give some shouts for 2021, I'm sure you got a list, and I can't wait to hear it. Brief list, but I think a good one. Shouts to that raggedy junior dragster. Shouts <laughs> to an epic Jed rant. Like I think you were 100% warranted. Oh, I love good. to hear you get worked up. Thanks, lady. Yeah, it was good. It was great. Shouts to Complicated Eliminator, aka. The rich man's pissing match. Love it. That's all I got. (laughs) Well, that's all we needed. That wrapped up the show right there, and uh, that summed it up well. Guys, thank you again for listening. If you like to tweet, uh, tweet us. Luke is at Luke Bogacki, B-O-G-A-C-K-I. I am at JP11X. We'd love to hear from you there or on our Facebook page, either one. And um, it is Christmas season. Uh, When you're hearing this, Christmas is going to have already passed by. So we hope that you had a Merry Christmas. And you got this one's coming out pre-Christmas. Oh, this one's coming out pre-Christmas. Oh, that's right. Yeah, you told. uh, Yeah, that's right. The other one. Yeah, okay. Just a a quick schedule update. I think I'd mentioned on last week's show, we would try to have an episode this week. We'd probably take the week off between Christmas and New Year's. Uh, I've got an update to that just for you because we love you so much. Not only do you get this episode, we have a special treat coming next week, an interview with 
another amazing NHRA world champion from 2021. Should we spill the beans, Ted? Yes, tell them. Reigning NHRA stock eliminator world champion Jerry Emmons will be on next episode. It'll drop probably mid part of next week between Christmas and New Year's. Look forward to that. Um, Obviously, you can probably tell we've already recorded that discussion. It's a good one. You don't want to miss it. Um, Jerry Emmons is uh, pretty spectacular. Really impressive dude. Very impressive. And Luke didn't lie. If you if you've followed sportsman drag racing for any length of time, the Emmons name is is very well known. And it's one that that you've seen over and over and over. Now, assuming you don't know the Emmons family, you've probably formed an opinion about those boys. Well, let me tell you something. If your opinion isn't that this is one of the most genuine, humble and appreciative people that has ever graced a racetrack, then you were wrong. You got to listen and you're going to have possibly a different opinion about not only Jerry Emmons, that's the interviewee, but his entire family. You'll hear a lot about them as well. And it's, uh, it's worth the listen. Do yourself a favor. Make sure you get it, uh, get it to where you can hear it uh, through your travels or working or whatever you're doing. Cause he, he was an awesome interview and, uh, I'm actually going to go back and re-listen to it myself just to make sure I didn't miss anything. It was really good. But anyway, that wraps us up again, as Luke mentioned, this one's pre-Christmas. I got a little crossed up there. So we hope you have a Merry Christmas and we hope you enjoy time with whomever you're spending Christmas with. And we hope that all of you are very good boys and girls and there's some Manscaped products under the tree for you because everybody deserves some good Manscaped products. Until next time, we appreciate you listening, and we can't wait to talk to you about more Sportsman Drag Racing. Enrollment in This Is Bracket Racing Elite is now open. You've heard me discuss, or at least reference, This Is Bracket Racing Elite. It is the premier offering of our website, thisisbracketracing.com. Elite is a membership community designed specifically to help you get from where you are today as a racer to who you want to be as a racer. Led by knowledgeable professionals, Justin Lamb and myself are longtime instructors and we bring in a host of guests, racers that you know, racers that you respect, led by knowledgeable instructors and surrounded by supportive peers that are ultimately striving for the same goal in their own unique way. The truth is at each event, there are a hundred plus entries, there's one winner. At the end of each season, there's one champion. That feeling, not so much the money, not so much the trophy, that feeling of achievement, that sense of accomplishment, that tip of the cap from your peers, that's why we do this. You can dream of that feeling all you want, or you can take action, take steps toward becoming that racer. If you're ready to take the first step, this is Bracket Racing Elite is for you. Enrollment is open now for a limited time. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite before we close the doors again on December the 8th. <laughs>